Hey everybody, you're listening to the Hope in Crisis podcast, where Tim Costello brings you intimate conversations with his inspiring friends from around the world during this difficult time of coronavirus. Our desire is that you would be filled with hope through these conversations to remain faithful and resilient during these unprecedented times. On this episode, Tim speaks to attorney Lucille Gigito. Lucille has been a lawyer with International Justice Mission in Cebu for eight years. Well, for 15 years of my life, which as I look back now, I think has been rather long. Uh, I'm like a dinosaur that should be extinct and still I'm here. But for 15 years, I was a lawyer. And I'm really excited to be talking to a fellow lawyer, attorney Lucille DeGito, who's a lawyer with the International Justice Mission in Cebu. That's in the Philippines, where she's been working for eight years. And uh, Lucille, as we'll discover, was a prosecutor on commercial sex trafficking cases. She went on to lead the team of prosecutors. And now Lucille is the head of prosecution development, and that involves mentoring and training public prosecutors to effectively pursue convictions for the online sexual exploitation of children. Welcome, Lucille. Hi, team. Good evening. Um, thank you for having me for this episode on your podcast. An absolute delight. First of all, how are you coping with COVID-19 in the Philippines? Cebu, I know, is an island south of Manila. How are you doing? Yes, you know, it has been quite crazy this past month. Um, we are still on community quarantine, um, although a few stores have opened up, but then um, we are seeing um, rising and um, the number of cases, at least in Cebu City. Um, but at the same time, um, just the resilient nature of Filipinos also gives us a lot of hope that we will be able to get through this stronger and um, even more resilient than ever. Well, I'm glad to hear that. And uh, you're in our prayers. Look, um, I have to admit, working as a criminal lawyer and a family lawyer, I got depressed. I can't imagine what it's like working with uh, prosecution of uh, people who are accused of cyber sex or trafficking of children and doing that for eight years. How, how do you cope with, when most of us would feel deep revulsion with the very nature of the work you have to deal with? Yes, um, I would admit, Tim, uh, I've been in this type of work for the past eight years now and going on my ninth year, there has been season where it's really difficult to get through each day, but there has always been hopeful reminders for for us to be able to continue the work. And one thing that um, has been helpful for me is knowing that as a prosecutor, I could not guarantee anything. I could not ensure anything. Um, Every day we are called to do our part with the best that we can. And it has been a huge help for me to be in a community of um, Christian lawyers who are also passionate and dedicated in what they've they've done. Um, I am also really grateful for the organization that I work with, the International Justice Mission, um, just cultivating that community of um, uh, hopeful individuals trying to 
um, share each other's burden and also a source of encouragement to one another. Um, it has been a great joy to be in this type of work for the past years now. Well, I take my hat off to you and I, uh, I uh, am so in admiration of you sticking at this for eight years because you're working well with the, uh, the heart of darkness. So uh, thank you on behalf of all of us, uh, Lucille. Um, look, maybe I can ask just the quiz question because people may be confused. When we talk about uh, online sexual uh, uh, exploitation of children, sometimes here in Australia we call it cyber sex trafficking of children. What does it actually mean? Yes, so online sexual exploitation of children, or sometimes we refer to this as OSEC, um, just for context, this type of exploitation actually covers live streaming of sexual abuse of children on the internet. The online offenders uh, in this type of abuse, who are typically coming from regions such as Europe, North America, and even Australia, uh, from the cases that we have worked on, they pay to actively direct in real time and watch the abuse of children online from the comforts of their homes. And the local traffickers who are based in the Philippines, our casework tells us 67% of them are family members or relatives or neighbors wow. of victims. Yes, uh, they, these are people who have easy and unopposed access to children, to, the, to their victims. The victims in these cases, half of them are 12 years old and even younger. Wow. So how, how would these... Uh... Criminals, perverts, whatever word we're using from Western nations, get in contact with people, parents, neighbours who are prepared to do this to their own children. How, how does the market work? Well, Tim, what we're seeing in our actual casework, they don't use sophisticated platforms. The same platforms, social media and messaging applications that we use on a day-to-day -day basis to connect with family, friends, and colleagues, these are the same platforms that these online predators and online sexual offenders use to connect to these local traffickers in Cebu. So um, you can just imagine how easy they could access that network of supply in um, the Philippines. And these, like like I said, these local traffickers based in the Philippines are living with their victims, are living with their, um, you know, children, nieces and nephews and have access to the children of their neighbors. So it happens just as simple as that, but in the same way, it's so sad to realize that this type of abuses can happen in our very own eyes. Um, the abuses happen inside the private homes. These children even go to school during the day. And in odd times um, of the day, they perform these um, explicit shows for online offenders um, under the direction of their, either their parents, their aunts, or even their neighbors. So I still don't quite understand this, Lucille. Does someone in the Philippines, a parent who wants to make money abusing a child, put a notice on Facebook or on Instagram or Twitter or for a Western sexual predator? How is it that that blatant? No. So the customers, the online offenders, they work on a 
referral basis. So the customers refer suppliers to one another. In the same way, the suppliers who are based in the Philippines refer customers to one another. So you can see that there are informal networks on both ends. So it's not as blatant as posting um, on uh, an ad online. It is just messaging um, directly to the referred supplier if you have the children available or um, the, the local traffickers mes messaging directly the online offenders referred by a fellow supplier who was um, referring other customers here in the Philippines. So it is um, a referral, personal referral basis. So for a referral, there's effectively a, an under-the-radar community of supply and demand abusers and those watching abuse uh, who just happen to know each other through some communal network, is it? Yes, um, that's uh, really one of the common ways for them to connect. Yeah. Now, most people listening to this, Lucille, would say for a, a parent, a family member to do this to a child, they must be desperate. They must be dreadfully poor. Is that the motivation that you see when you prosecute? No, um, Tim, what we are seeing and um, hundreds of cases of online sexual exploitation that we have handled. This crime is not caused by poverty. This is a crime of opportunity. What we are seeing is that because of the hidden nature of this crime, in secret thrives impunity. Unless you cut that cycle where the perpetrators are arrested and restrained, that's the only way we can see that um, the number of victims are dramatically reduced by restraining the hand of the perpetrator. So it's really not a crime of poverty, but I, I, as I've mentioned, it is a crime of opportunity as what we are seeing in these cases. So perpetrators who are in the West, we know, are well off. You're telling me that perpetrators in the Philippines aren't necessarily poor. Not necessarily poor. Um, there is obviously a disparity between um, the economic status of the online offender who is in the demand country compared to the local traffickers here um, in the Philippines, which is a devel developing country. So what is a small amount um, from the perspective of a customer in the demand country is not small at all from the perspective of someone in a developing country. And we have seen um, in the perpetrators that have been arrested in these cases, there are some of those who are even in gated subdivisions with tiled floors. Um, so this, this particular crime actually transcends any economic status when it comes to um, on the supply side. Um, so what we're seeing is that this is not really um, driven by poverty. But since there is a quick, easy money um, on this type of crime with very low chances of, uh, you know, with impunity, with very low chances of them getting caught because it looks like it is hidden, then it thrives. Impunity of trafficking these children in this manner thrives. 
So it's greed and it's opportunity. Tell me, Lucille, why is the Philippines a hotspot for this? The Philippines now is a global epicenter or a hotspot of live streaming OSAC. And there are a lot of enabling factors. Um, number one, the proficiency in English language. Most of the um, customers, the online offenders coming from the demand side, they are English speaking. Um, and the English proficiency in the Philippines is quite good. We can speak English and we can communicate in English. Another factor that enables this crime to proliferate is the um, infrastructure of money transfer agencies in the Philippines. In every corner, at you know, in Cebu City or even the rest of the country, you can see a lot of money transfer agencies here and there. Um, and that what you need to be able to do this type of crime, um, the capital investment is just very uh, inexpensive um, for how many pesos you could already get a smartphone with a capability of capturing um, videos or to live stream video calls um, and all that. And uh, also easy access to children. Um, so these are just some of the factors that allow um, this OSEC crime to really thrive. And also in addition to that is the relative impunity in this type of crime. Well, we're, we're hearing a few pings and sound strange noises on the internet. But what I heard you say is that English is widely spoken. Internet access is widespread. That's why the Philippines is also a hotspot. Has there been an increase in reports of child abuse since lockdown? Mm. Um, what we're seeing, Tim, is that first, the Australian government e-safety commissioner reported 86% um, increase in image-based abuse. We've also 86%. worked Right, 86%. Uh, in image-based abuse. We've worked with foreign law enforcement and uh, the Australian Federal Police and the Australian Centre to Counter Child Exploitation have observed the emergence of child abuse forums established as a result of COVID-19 stay-at-home measures. Um, that's really unbelievable. They have also learned about child sexual exploitation material sites even crashing in the recent weeks due to the increased volume of traffic to these sites. And we're not just talking about the Australia side, Tim. Um, even Europol recently released a report citing an apparent increase in the demand for child sexual exploitation materials in their number of con uh, member countries with significant increases in downloading of uh, CSCM in Spain, including attempts to access CSEM websites in Denmark sometime in March. So while it is really difficult to measure the live streaming of OSEC due to some limitations and available tools, there are really strong indicators of a spike coinciding with the lockdown. So does the Philippines have the will in its law enforcement to deal with this? And has there been any good news in cracking down on any of this, Lucille? Yes, definitely, Tim. While the Philippines is the global epicenter um, of OSEC, I would say the Philippine government is actually leading in the fight in combating OSEC. It has been encouraging to see the Philippine National Police, um, especially the 
a Women and Children Protection Center and the National Bureau of Investigation. These are the two agencies leading in combating OSEC, along with other related crimes. Um, Right now, we're talking about the lockdown, even just during the, the period of lockdown, where there are a lot of um, mobility challenges, health risks around. The Philippine government has um, conducted a rescue where IJM has supported 14 rescue operations from March to June, which translates to 49 victims and children at risk who have been rescued and removed from that place of exploitation and the arrest of eight, uh, eight perpetrators just during the lockdown period alone. Um, all the more, you know, um, when the times were different, um, even in the past years, they have conducted an impressive over 500 rescue operations all over the country. Well, I know there's interagency collaboration between the Philippine law enforcement and the Australian Federal Police and with other governments, crime agencies too. So you, do you think they're just nailing the tip of the iceberg or are they breaking the back of this, Lucille? It is really the tip of the iceberg, um, Tim. Uh, right now, uh, there is some room for... Um, different um you know different groups the tech companies the financial institutions and even child protection um, groups to come together with the governments both in the demand and supply countries uh to increase the ability to detect timely detect live streaming of osec the limitation there tim is on the technology side right now while there are available technologies to detect to certain extent um, uh, some materials, child sexual exploitation materials, there is really a huge limitation in detecting live streaming OSEC. And when these cases come, uh, come into the hands of law enforcement you know, uh, agencies for investigation, these materials are either um, years or months ago, um, these are not new materials that are being referred to um, to the law enforcement agencies. So there is really room for tech companies um, for to help law enforcement innovate this tool that would increase timely visibility to live streaming OSEC. Yeah. So we, we need some hope, hearing it's just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, are there stories of particular survivors? Are there stories of hope? You can tell us, Lucille. Yes, um, as you said, Tim, um, the work that we do can be very difficult. You know, the hours will be long and it is not without challenges. And one of the stories that we always look back to and for me personally and my team, it never fails to inspire us. It's the story of one of our survivors. Not her real name, but we lovingly call her Joy. Joy was abused by her trafficker when she was 10 years old, a very young, tender um, girl. Back then, she described herself as a stray, dro stray dog. Uh, she grew up moving from home to home and passed among various family members. Uh, in the hands of her trafficker, she was made to perform shows in front of 
webcam for foreigner customers together with other children that her trafficker also abused. And this was her life until she was rescued when she was 13 years old. After she was rescued, an aftercare home took her in and provided her with all the interventions that she needed, care and, you know, provided her the support that she needed to heal and be fully restored. And because of that, she started dreaming big dreams. Um, and over the years, it was really a joy to witness her journey of hope. Um, I, I, every time I, I say this, I'm really um, thrilled. Um, just recently, she graduated from college with a degree of social work, saying that she will use this to also journey with other survivors as a social worker. That's just amazing, amazing. And we, we were very proud of her when she spoke before 90 government ministers in the African Union in Ethiopia last year. She became the voice of hundreds of survivors before governments to combat OSEC globally. And uh, Joy's story of restoration has been a powerful story of hope for us and for other children who are yet to be rescued. Wow. That, that moves me to tears. When a child's rescued, presumably there's a family that's fractured. Is there ever reconciliation with the fractured families? Yes, Tim. Uh, one of the things that is really important and critical for the child um, is to be able to come to terms with that part, uh, that part that has been fractured in her relationship with um, a family member who has been her abuser and now incarcerated. So after the case has been um, uh, promulgated, we, our social worker and the government social worker um, would arrange for what we call a reconciliatory meeting. Um, both parties will be prepared. Um, another party will be preparing the part of the uh, abuser family member um, and also the social worker caring for the victim will also prepare the victim for the meeting. And it is where there is acknowledgement of um, the abuse, the acknowledgement of um the the things that has been committed by the perpetrator towards the victim and the victim is able to um receive that uh and see it from the lens of forgiveness it doesn't mean that when you forgive your perpetrator that this your perpetrator will not um, be held liable for the abuses that she or he committed. And that is just so powerful for the victim as that lifts off a certain guilt feeling um, that has been hovering over your shoulder, over the, the child's shoulder. Because there's a part of the child that's thinking that because of her telling the truth in court, that puts her mother or her auntie or her perpetrator in jail. And that's that's one of the points where really needs reconciliation for the child to live out a a life of strength and freedom and for her to fully heal as well. 
Well, it's unbelievably complex, but our Christian faith really says uh, the word salvation uh, means reconciliation. How has your faith sustained you through eight long years, Lucille? I could not imagine um, doing what I do, Tim, um, and having to survive from one season to another with this work without my faith in God. And even, you know, with the context and what is happening now, and also with the work that uh, my team does as we draw near to places of pain and suffering, just remembering that our God is the God of hope. And God's love is the darkness-piercing love there can ever be. And um, this does not mean that I pretend not to see the darkness of the work that I do or the hardship around me, but it is really more of even in the face of it to declare to myself that God has won already the battle um, and God's promises, assurance, and remembering His faithfulness and goodness has been a source of strength to me. So when I think about the children who are in dark places right now, if my heart breaks for these children, all the more our God in heaven breaks um, his heart for these children. And um, it is by God's timing and by God's grace that God will use us, my team, to bring rescue to these children. So Lucille, our story is a the story of redemption, the song of redemption, being brought back from slavery, from oppression, and uh, literally being in a safe place. Mm. You, are, you are singing that song of redemption that has really touched me. Thank you so much, Lucille. Good night and God bless. Thank you for listening to Hope in Crisis. We're a new podcast, so we would really appreciate it if you would share this with your friends and leave us a rating and review whilst making sure you're subscribed to receive our future episodes. That would be great. Be blessed and we'll be back soon with our next inspiring conversation. Brought to you by the Eternity Podcast Network.